This Choircast podcast is brought to you by The Joy of Letting Go by Kevin Sweeney. When one of the great living mystics, Richard Rohr, writes, all great spirituality is somehow about letting go. Do we just skim by it and look for the next great quote? Or do we allow this truth to utterly change our relationship with God, humanity, and reality itself? And if we accept letting go as the key to transformation, the question becomes how? How is each life-altering step of the spiritual journey somehow about letting go? Well, my new book, The Joy of Letting Go, is the answer to that question. My dream is that everyone who reads this will open up to the possibility that to engage everything from the concrete to the cosmic and from the tiniest arguments with your partner to the biggest social tragedies of our time without losing our joy, we have to learn how to let go. Yo, glad to have you a part of the show today where we gather with my friends, Kevin Sweeney, Keith Giles, Fred Stella, Caleb Gilliland, and Gregory Smith, who are representing a new book of essays out called Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree, What We Learn by Listening to Other Faiths. And all of this comes to us from Choir Publishing. So this book is what the subtitle says. It's people of faith writing about what they've learned from other faiths. And as such, it is my kind of book. I'm really proud of the guys at Choir for pulling this off. Uh, we couldn't get all the authors together, but we did get a group of them, a handful. And so they'll kind of be representing everyone. And we'll get to chat with each of them in just a moment. So I hope you'll enjoy that. If you do, like it, review it, share it, do all the things that you do on your particular podcasting platform. That'll help us out. And we really appreciate it. Meanwhile, if you haven't had a chance yet to jump on my Substack page, I don't know where you've been, uh, but now is your time to do it. Just go to the Substack, either app or the website, substack.com, pretty easy, and search for Jonathan underscore Foster, and you'll find uh, writing there, podcasts, different things for both free and paid subscribers. I'd love for you to be a part of that. It is the best way to keep up on all things happening, Jonathan underscore Foster. And it'd be fun to have you a part of that. And speaking of all things happening, the biggest project right now is uh, a new book that's coming out depending on when you're listening to this episode. It may already be out. I'm crowdfunding it first. And then we'll be launching it later on all the different digital sites like Amazon and Kobo and Apple and those kinds of things. But the book is called Indigo, The Color of Grief. And as you can tell from the title, it is a look at grief at parenting, at theology. It's a look at life and loss and art and beauty. I think actually this book has a chance to put a dent into the way the world, or the church for that matter, thinks about these things. Uh, It cost me a lot to get there, both in terms of what I've had to go through, but also maybe in terms like literal dollars, in terms of like going to school and you know, trying to learn things. Not that you uh, necessarily learn all these things from school, but for me, Finishing up master's and dissertation stuff was really helpful. It helped me understand theology a little bit better and then hopefully helps me communicate it better in writing like this. So I hope that you will participate. Would love to have you a part of it. If you just, if you're on my Substack page, you'll hear about it. But also if not, just go to jonathanfosteronline.com and you'll find the links so that you can plug into that and learn more about it. 
it's being endorsed by a lot of really, I think, healthy writers. I'm really humbled by their response. And so I think it might mean something to the world. We'll see. Love to have you apart. All right, enough of me. Let's get to our conversation with Fred and Kevin and Keith and Caleb and Gregory. Again, the book is called Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree, What We Learn by Listening to Other Faiths, and it comes to us from Choir Publishing. It can be found on Amazon today. You might as well pick it up while you're listening to this episode. Thanks, everyone. then. Well, welcome, everyone. It's good to be with all of you guys today. And uh, we're going to be talking today about sitting in the shade of another tree, what we learn by listening to other faiths. Imagine that, a group of spiritually inclined people actually advocating for listening to other people. That's pretty amazing. Hmm. So this is a book put together by Choir and edited by Keith Giles and Matthew DeStefano. And um, it's really fun to have all of you guys with us today. Actually, it's not everyone from the book. But yeah, Keith, tell us how this book came about, why it came about, and what it's all about. Yeah, well, thank you again so much, Jonathan, for having us on to talk about the book. It's a, it's a kind of a labor of love, and it's very exciting to see it now finally come to light. So yeah, about a year ago, um, Matthew DeStefano and I we're uh, getting ready to, you know, kind of take the reins from Choir Publishing. And uh, he and I both are blogging at Patheos. I've been blogging there for a long time. And we thought, you know, we had a, we thought we had a good idea of a way we could partner with Patheos. So we got a call with them. And this was the idea. We said, wouldn't it be amazing if we could publish a book together that um, got different voices of different people from different faiths? And Patheos is perfect for that because they're the world's largest religious blogging platform. And they have people blogging on channels like Buddhist and, you know, uh, Islam and Hindu and Buddhist, everything, Christian, everything. So, um, you know, so we said, what if, what if we were able to get, you know, an assortment of authors and writers and thinkers from different, a variety of different faith, faith, uh, you know, systems and have them tell us what's good and right about other faith systems, because usually when people talk about another faith system than their own, it's to criticize it and critique it and point out all the ways it's wrong, you know, all of the apologetics stuff. And, um, you know, so like, what would that look like? What, wouldn't it be amazing if we could publish a book like that? And they loved the idea, thankfully. I think we had the title almost right off the bat, like Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree. Mm-hmm. Um, they helped us assemble a bunch of bloggers uh, from their different channels on Patheos. Choir contributed some of our authors as well and some other people that we were in connection with and invited them to participate. And yeah, the result is this book that we have right now, which is seriously way, way better than I think we could ever have imagined it a year ago. Um, just great insights, incredible people, um, all kinds of different perspectives and like you said, we have only a, a small little slice snapshot of, of that today uh, on the podcast, but I think enough to whet people's appetite of what the book has in store. Yeah, that's really cool. So I'm, I'm really happy that you guys pursued that. And and I've been able to read uh, probably about half of it at this point. 
I'm really thrilled with what's happening, excited mm -hmm. for the mm -hmm. dialogue. So I think what we'll do today is um, we'll just hang out a little bit, talk a little bit about what each of you guys have contributed, maybe why, and um, we'll just see wherever the wherever the dialogue takes us. Mm -hmm. But how, how about we start with Mr. Fred? Uh, to clarify, my my wife's religion is the same as mine. We were both raised Roman Catholic. We both independently embraced the Hindu Dharma, right? So when I decided that, okay, it's time for me to take a wife, to start looking seriously at, uh, uh, at that aspect of life, I realized that, first of all, if I were to only seek search in the pool of Hindus, I would probably be looking at an Indian American wife. And at the time that I was looking, that it was age appropriate, there were no Indian women in Grand Rapids, Michigan, that were in my age range. They were either in their 50s or they were like 12. And so, and, and then I also thought that as much as I appreciate and embrace the Indian culture, for a life partner, I think I would want someone who shared my experience growing up. So I thought probably someone of uh, European descent, American, that, that would be great. I was open to just about anything, but in the back of my mind, I thought shared experiences growing up, being able to talk about things culturally and, and such, uh, and, and have a resonance would be, would be great. And so when I was thinking of who the perfect woman for me would be, I came up with, okay, I definitely want someone who is practicing the Hindu Dharma, but I'd like an ex-Catholic if at all possible. <laughs> because we would have come from that that same wisdom tradition to be able to talk about our memories of Catholic school. And you don't marry a person, you marry their family in most instances. And I, I grew up, well, believe me, I was 10 days shy of my 40th birthday when I got married. Hmm. And one of the reasons I was 10 days shy of my 40th birthday is that my uncle told me that brilliant maxim when I was a teenager. So I looked uh, with uh, great scrutiny at the families of the women that I dated. And I, I always, I always kind of kept that back in my mind. So I knew, I assumed that I would feel more comfortable in an environment of people who were practicing Catholics, even though I was no longer, and that I still respected the tradition, and that I could still, I could speak the language uh, with Catholics. And when it came to things like weddings and funerals, I could attend them and, number one, know what's going on, and number two, participate to a, a certain degree. So that is the that is what we brought in our marriage, and uh, I'll tell you one thing: our our wedding. Uh, you you might find this interesting. Our wedding was conducted by my cousin, who is a Catholic priest, mind you, a very radical Catholic priest. 
it took place at a non-denominational, Unitarian-leaning, beautiful, beautiful church here in Grand Rapids. And what we wanted to communicate to our families, we're heavily Catholic, is the respect for the tradition that birthed us, that raised us, that 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 welcomed us in welcomed us into a spiritual tradition, and yet also show who we are now. And so again, we had my Catholic priest investments do the wedding. We had a Gregorian choir. We had uh, a, a woman uh, who, and she's black, and so she did two Negro spiritual versions. Uh, one was Amazing Grace, and the other was the Lord's Prayer. But we also had what is called a kirtan group, a, a, a Hindu musical group with, with traditional Indian instruments. And mm-hmm. they, they performed as well uh, ancient uh, Hindu devotional chants. Um, and so there were uh, both traditions sort of permeating that, uh, that wedding. We, we developed it from scratch. So, and, and still to today, while we were both firmly in the Hindu tradition, uh, we, we honor what came before us. Uh, there are some people when you say, well, are you Catholic? They'll say, well, I'm a recovering Catholic. <laughs> All right. I, I would never say that. I'm no longer Catholic. I'm very, I'm I'm not like a Catholic Hindu or anything like that. I I no longer have that belief system nor that system of practice. However, I uh, have a tremendous respect for it and I can glean from it great wisdom. So, and I I keep my Catholic friends very close. (laughs) I'm very involved. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about myself. Mm-hmm. So I wear a few different hats. I am what is called a Pracharik, which translates to outreach minister for the West Michigan Hindu temple. So I am ordained in that capacity. Um, I'm also on the National Leadership Council of the West Michigan, I'm sorry, of the Hindu American Foundation. So I'm very active in my faith community, but I'm also extremely active in the interfaith community. Uh, I am on the board of the Kaufman Interfaith Institute, which is housed at a local college here in Grand Rapids, actually Grand, Grand Valley State University. Uh, I'm uh, uh, v- responsible for a great deal of programming. I work with people of a variety of faiths and also those people who are secular. And I have a radio program that airs on our local national public radio affiliate here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And then it is later after broadcast, it's uh, it's uploaded as a podcast. And so I work constantly with people of other faiths. My friends are all of other faiths in the interfaith community. So, yes, when I think of the things for which I'm grateful, this interfaith playing field is certainly Mm. one of them no question yeah just to show you look at this my mug celebrates the birth of jesus all year long (laughs) with a snowman (laughs) with the snowman (laughs) close close well it's about as close as most american christians (laughs) let me let me tell seriously my particular 
movement or sect, denomination, whatever you want to call it, of Hinduism. We actually, we each individual chapter around the world can choose any day in Advent to hold an eight-hour meditation service in honor of Jesus. Mm. Not Jesus the Savior, but Jesus, shall we say, the Jewish Buddha. Mm. Yeah. So, so there's that. Nice. That's interesting. That's pretty cool. Thanks for being mm-hmm. with us. Thanks for what you wrote. I enjoyed That's reading cool. it. And um, also, I hope it's okay, but my son's football team just beat Grand Valley State a couple of weeks ago. So if you could just pass my condolences on to all your... <laughs> no, 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 no. My money was on them. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. It was I'm not, not on Grand Valley State. Okay. No, no. No. Well, trust me. I know where my, to put my money. Yeah, trust me. I, my money is in uh, is in my son's school too. Uh, <laughs> I bet. In, in more ways, ways than, one. than one. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. How about you, Caleb? You're coming from across the pond, and uh, so thanks for carving out time to be with us today. Tell us a little bit about what you wrote and um, why you're excited to be a part of this little group. Yeah. Yeah. Again, thanks for uh, for having me on this podcast, inviting us all on. Um, yeah. So for me, it was more like it was kind of a recounting of my experience. So I, I grew up evangelical in the South, and you know, like everybody was Baptist around me growing up. My family is Baptist on both sides. Like I, I think I I probably mentioned in the chapter, but I, I remember there being exactly twenty six Catholics in my county. So in some ways, quite the opposite of like parts of the Midwest. And I mean, I, again, I, I knew that because I was friends with one and I was looking out for those sorts of stats, even back then in the uh, the county newspaper. So, you know, it was pretty monolithic, but, you know, in a good way. And, and I talk about like, you know, I really focus on the positive experiences that I had, you know, in that tradition and that culture. And, you know, like, I, I don't know how much I get into, it's been a while since I've read it, but like the, the, the process of, you know, finding a different faith. Uh, I became a Baha'i when I was in high school. And, you know, in, in some ways, it's a different faith, you know, but in other ways, it feels like a fulfillment in some sense of my evangelical upbringing, um, you know, religiously, but you know, culturally as well, I, I think. And so, you know, I talk about that quite a bit um, in the process that I went through and, you know, like focusing on the parallels, especially of, of the actual belief systems. And so one of the things, you know, that's kind of similar, but different in both that I, I focus on is the idea of salvation. Um, so for, you know, Baptists, I, I grew up Southern Baptist specifically, and you, know, you have this like, you know, saving experience, um, it's kind of quite, quite emotional, you know, like an altar call, you have to go up to the front and, you know, talk about that and, and, you know, the different kind of things that go along with it, like the emotions, like if you're kind of a, an introvert, maybe it's a little more difficult than if you're an extrovert, you know, stuff you don't always think about, you sort of experience the, uh, the call of Jesus in some sense as being a universal one, but the way that people respond to it isn't just you know, in relation to how much faith they may or may not have. Sometimes it's it's up to personality. And it's quite scary. You know, you have, uh, you know, the pastor, you know, like Hellfire Brimstone, and they're quite good at that, at painting those pictures, you know, maybe a Jonathan Edwards style. And, you know, like if you go home tonight, you know, you might get hit by a car, you know, you, you may not have another chance to, to make a decision for Jesus. And so, you know, it's, it's really existential feeling, um, mm. which I got to say, like, unpleasant, in, in a lot of ways, but then looking back on it, there aren't that many things in our lives, at least in, in culture today, that actually feel existential in that way, at least not for me. Mm. And so in some ways, I'm kind of wistfully nostalgic about it. Interesting. Um, and then, 
Yeah. So as, as a Baha'i, like it's, you do have a, a process where you declare your faith in Baha'u'llah. Um, but it's, it's a lot less pressure filled. You don't general, have to do it before you die tonight. Yeah, it's not exactly like that. Um, it's more, <laughs> I mean, different people leisurely. come to it different ways, um, but there generally isn't like the hellfire and brimstone. That's not really a feature of uh, Baha'i theology. I mean, like hell exists the way the Baha'is think about it, but it's almost more of like a state of existence. So if, if you're in a bad spiritual place, like you could literally be in hell at that moment. And so, and, and vice versa, right? And that's both this world and the next world and, you know, falling worlds after after you die and everything like that. And so it's it's more existential in a certain way, I guess. Um, so we had this parallel experience of salvation. Um, one of the things that I thought was cool is the, the focus on narrative in both faiths. Um, so as, a, uh, as an evangelical, like the primary narrative in some ways, like you get the narrative of scripture, the big narrative, Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus, you know, you get the book, book of Acts and the uh, the apostles. But then in some ways, like it's more of a narrative of just yourself as an individual, because evangelicalism and like most Protestantism in general is really focused on the journey of the individual from death of unbelief into faith, right, in, in life. And so in some sense, it's almost like ahistorical. Like you don't actually need the Bible to be historical for that. Like you don't need, you need Adam and Eve up until Genesis 3. And then you don't really need anything else other than until you get to Jesus. And maybe you have this sort of like a historical algorithm shift in some sense, like God pays the debt of everyone's sin. And then everything, nothing really needs to change after that. History kind of is, is over until Jesus returns. So in some ways, it's just kind of lifted out of time. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, so it, like it's, it's the journey of the individual I, I find that's the most important. But anyway, the, the Old Testament's still there. The New Testament's still there. And as a Baha'i, like, and because we look at the uh, the major religions of the world as being different chapters of the same story, the, the one story that all humanity is part of, and that we're kind of moving forward with into uh, the next chapter of building a new civilization. So in some sense, like, looking at the different world religions themselves, it kind of maps onto humanity's development, and that itself is a narrative. And it's kind of a fun one because we can find every every one of us in it. And then lastly, I was talking a bit about detachment and reliance upon God. And one thing about the evangelical tradition that, you know, is I find I found really interesting and moving is just this ultimate sense of helplessness before anything other than God himself. And so you're not capable. I mean, like the original sin, um, even um, like some of Calvin's stuff. I mean, we weren't Calvinists. But the idea that you were just it was not possible to make a good decision. Like everything you did had to be helped by God and like along because you had no goodness in you, which is really depressing. But it's also but but it did foster the sense of detachment and reliance that I thought was really special. And as a Baha'i, like that sort of thing is quite is em emphasized a lot in the Baha'i writings as well. And so, you know, kind of going through that, the idea that like you it's it's not like, you know, sometimes like a critique of the evangelicals of other faiths is that like they're trying to earn their way to heaven in some sense. You know, it's like you have like sort of a, a ledger, an account, and you have to try to have more good in it than bad. And then evangelicals are like, that's a horrible way of looking at things. You know, other religions are, are false to the extent that they believe that. But the way that Baha'is would look at that in this, and it really comes down to this idea of reliance, is that basically God, either God accepts your good deeds, God accepts your faith, and he doesn't have to. It's his decision. It's not up to you. So we have a month of fasting of 19 days and kind of like in the, in the similar way to Muslims do from sun up to sundown. 
And there's a prayer that you say after it's all over. And in the prayer, basically God is saying, I like, I can accept it or I can like, you could, you could follow, you could fast completely and it may not be accepted and you could not fast at all and break everything and it may be accepted. And I mean, perhaps it means that whatever's in your heart is most important, you know, who knows? But at the end of the day, it's like you are ultimately relying on God, not because of anything you can do. And so looking at those parallels, uh, both traditions and exploring that. So that was, you know, kind of the the gist of my chapter and just kind of, you know, experiential and, and the parallels. Yeah. Mm, interesting. You've been on a journey, man, both geographically and existentially, <laughs> spiritually, all over the place. Yeah, man. I mean, we, well, so we just, uh, we had a, our third kid yesterday, so. <laughs> oh, he was finally born? I'm finally born. So, happens, oh, congrats. Finally. I didn't hear the word. So, that's great. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> that makes, you know, scheduling podcasts a little easier now because I know I'm not necessarily going to be in the hospital looking for yeah. a baby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, things, journeys, man, journeys of life. It's all over the place. So, <laughs> that's right. Congratulations. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Thanks, man. Nice. Bravo. All right, Kevin, let's move out to Hawaii. I didn't know we were going to do a global podcast. Yes, today. I know, right? It's been no, going international. Over. That's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, me and me and Caleb, we're hours apart. What time is it out there? Yeah, right now it's um almost seven thirty. Oh, so we're like yeah, almost twelve hours exactly, different times. That's crazy. Yeah, it's good. I'm happy. Early. This is my first thing in the morning. Really, kids, you know, have a little thing. They go to they go to school. They leave, and now this is like my first thing before I'm doing things. So it's good to be here with everybody, Jonathan. Good to connect after a few emails. Yeah, man. And my my chapter is I think it's called uh, Zen Suzuki Merton and Me. And so it's about. Zen, it's about the great Zen master D.T. Suzuki, his relationship with Merton, and really me discovering Suzuki and more of Zen through Merton. And then me, there's a book I mentioned before, it's called uh, Zen and the Birds of Appetite, really small book, but which is an exchange between D.T. Suzuki and Merton. And Mm -hmm. that book for me, not on an academic level for the most part of the time when I was in grad school, but on a personal level, with my own experiential mystical orientation was at being still rooted in the Christian tradition. That was a really important book. I mean, there's one line in there that always stays with me. So that, that, that sort of little ecosystem of relationships has really stayed with me. And, you know, in in that book, Zen and the Birds of Appetite, Suzuki says personal experience therefore is everything in Zen. Right. No ideas are intelligible to those who have no backing of experience. Right. So it's more experience than explanation. It's more unity than understanding. It's more beholding than believing. And that focus, right, it's not limited to that, but that focus on direct experience beyond before and beneath dogma and traditions and beliefs and rituals is for me really at the heart of why Zen for me is this powerful clearing for everybody, right? Zen is not limited to a specific uh, metaphysical system in any way, right? It's, and it's, also, it's also not antagonistic towards those who are in there, right? It's very invitational and very open in that sense. And for me, some of us were together yesterday. I mentioned my experience growing up was not anything evangelical. I did... You know, like uh, Fred shared, I went to I went to Catholic school, first, second, third grade in, in Los Angeles, where I grew up before I moved to Hawaii. 
And in third grade, I left and I went to public school, LA Unified School District. I still don't know exactly why I left the Catholic school or why I didn't continue there. But all I know is when I went to public school and kids were cussing and fighting, I was like, this is salvation for me. How <laughs> ironic, you know, that I got out. Now it's all here. I can finally be myself. Let's, let's keep it going. <laughs> and I tell people after that, like I stopped going to mass soon after and my parents, especially my dad's very traditional Irish Catholic family, they didn't shame me, coerce me, need me, force me to go. And I'm really, really grateful for that. You know, I, I left with what I call a pleasant indifference to God, Jesus, organized religion. It just was a non-issue for me. I didn't think about it. There was no antagonism, no anti, no oppositional energy. It just didn't, but it also didn't affect me in a conscious way. You know, those things get in you in unconscious ways, right? Mm -hmm. In ways we don't understand until later, but the rituals and all that, but it was a non-issue. And my own journey led me to this profound existential crisis at 17. Why am I doing everything? Am I doing what am I? What does it mean to be human? Am I really constantly driven by the need for approval? Is that all I'm doing all the time with sports and music? Like, what, what is this? And that just leads to more questions. And I had this profound, spontaneous awakening moment with God while I was 18, while I was on mushrooms at the time, you know, psilocybin. And it was immediate, it was real, it was radically reorienting, not just in the moment, but actually for my life after that, it, it was the turning point for everything, even to this day, right? And for me, that first experience was, it was just that, it was direct experience. It was a knowing of God, which was actually a being known by God. It wasn't a seeing, it was the experience of being seen by a loving gaze. It was, I didn't do anything, no sinner's prayer. I never heard of that. You know, I never heard of youth groups growing up. It was no sinner's prayer, no really strong belief system, no ideological ties. It was direct being held by that which I had been wondering was around. And it was just pure affirmation. For me, my first experience of God was pure affirmation of life and of me. So that's... I begin in a wide open field, right? And then a few years later, I end up in a four square Bible college and they're like, hey, you know that wide open field? It's actually yeah. right here. <laughs> <laughs> you were in a wide open field, it was like a jungle, it's beautiful. And it's actually this very specific path with very high guardrails. And this is where it's at. And developmentally, that was helpful. You know, you get you get the system. Like my experience in Bible college. Reminds me of the Dalai Lama quote where, you know, he's like, you have to learn the rules to creatively break them. Like, that's what evangelicalism did for me. And I'm grateful for that. It's like, it's, it's here. It's a path. I needed that developmentally. It gave me something concrete to stand on. I'm like, I look around after a year and a half. I'm like, but guys, like, we're not staying here. Like, this is this is a launching pad, not a settlement for the rest of our lives. Yeah. So, so coming into the Christian tradition in a practical way, loving the way of Jesus, giving my life to this path. But there was still an openness to wisdom everywhere, to listening to spirit everywhere. I mean, for me, from the beginning, I'm like, no, this is about depth and experience and joy. And what drove me as a teenager to this crisis and awakening wasn't, I want to be right. It was like, what is actually real here? And I don't care how it shows up. I don't have a pre-existing condition that requires me to see it showing up in a specific way. Like 
That's why one of the things I would say as a Christian now is like, I'll say Christ has 10,000 faces and Jesus is the clearest one. That's my conviction as a Christian and what incarnate a part of incarnation. But I got my wisdom from the trees and the wind. I was just listening everywhere. That's what was guiding me. It wasn't a youth pastor. It was the wind and the trees and me listening. Like those were my sermons. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, if I can listen to the trees and and look at a flower and learn and be moved and have an experience. I think if I can listen to the trees, I think I can listen to human beings who map the cosmos differently than me. Cause you know, they have a much more complex way of communicating than the flower. So I think for me, there was always a natural openness. Wisdom is everywhere. It's all over people, creation. You're just paying it to me. You're paying attention the sermons are everywhere, you know, like in Hawaii, it's, I think it's the place in the world that has the most rainbows. I might be wrong about that, but we see rainbows constantly. That's a constant communication of its light and rain creates beauty, making two out of one, no more compartmentalizing. This is like, to me, it's everywhere. And so I think that openness makes me appreciate Zen and Thich Nhat Hanh and these great thinkers and the perennial tradition and all these people who I love and that's a part of the, you know, the heart of the book as a whole is, and sitting in the shade of another tree, it's, I'm, I'm learning from other people that go, the Zen is this opening that helps me go deeper into my own tradition. And I'm mm-hmm. very, very grateful for that. And I think that's possible. You know, I think we can all keep doing that. So, yeah. Yeah, that's good. I think it's possible too. And I think all <laughs> of us here uh, today are kind of living evidence of that of that um, happening. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Now we're going to Washington or Canada. What <laughs> yeah. is currently in currently in Washington, but yeah. a stone a stone's throw from uh, from British Columbia. Yep. Mm. Excellent. Well, Gregory, uh yeah, share us a little bit. Do you go by Gregory or Greg? Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Right. Um yeah, either way. Well, uh, I I usually go by yourself. Greg, but I write by Gregory. So, um <clears throat> Yeah, well, my chapter is on uh, two faiths, uh, neo-paganism and Taoism, and how both of those have influenced my Christianity. Um, I would describe myself today as very much of a Taoist Christian. Um, The Taoist would be the adjective, but the noun would be the Christian. Mm -hmm. Um, And what that means for me is that uh, there's a lot of different aspects of Taoism. There's a religious Taoism. There's a philosophical Taoism. There's kind of a um, traditional Taoism. For me, Taoism would be the philosophy, but but Christianity would be the theology, if mm. that makes mm. any sense. Mm. Um, but uh, it's very nature-centered, very focused on, on flow and harmony and balance. Um, but I want to I want to bounce off of something that that Kevin was saying. Kevin, you were talking about how you know that that Bible college experience was very narrow. Um, I would say in in my growing up, uh, I grew up Southern Baptist, mm. and uh, in in the rural South, and um, so that was a very narrow kind of mindset to grow mm. up in. And uh, then I went to to college and my, my bachelor's degree is in world religions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my pastor cautioned me going into a, uh, secular, 
university with a with a world religions degree you know you're gonna hear so much and it's gonna be so wide open but just make sure you stay on that straight and narrow um so at that early age in college i had to kind of figure out how to understand my christianity Mm. and but also understand other faiths and early on uh, I, I lean really heavily towards that uh, fundamentalist, um, you know, conservative evangelicalism uh, that I was growing up in. And, and so I, I kind of, I got the degree in world religions, but I still lean more theologically toward that uh, conservative evangelicalism. Uh, from there, I went to a uh, more moderate uh, Baptist seminary. It was not uh, the the ultra conservative Baptist seminaries uh, that are part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, so I got a more moderate perspective there, but still in the churches there was that very narrow perspective. Um, and and in the early part of my ministry, I kind of fell in line with that that more narrow, uh, what I would call a fundamentalist. Well, maybe not fundamentalist, but very conservative uh, perspective. So other religions were just wrong, mm-hmm. you know, and, yeah. and, and that's just kind of how it was. And some other religions were just evil, you know. Uh. So, so uh, there were – it was kind of a spectrum. You have some, some religions like, you know, that, that are just, well, they're okay, but they're wrong. And then other ones that are just of the devil. So, yeah, <laughs> Fred raises his hand. <laughs> um, so I went. I went so far as to, uh, very early on in those days, um, during the Satanic Panic and and all those, you know, the, it was the mm-hmm. early nineties. Um, <laughs> that was uh, Keith's first uh, band name, I think. Satanic Panic. <laughs> I wasn't a Christian band, but I always wanted to, I always wanted to have a Christian band called Balaam's Ass. <laughs> I just That's didn't awesome. uh never never managed to get get that together. But there's still anyway. time. There's still time. I know there's still yeah, you're right. There's still time. <laughs> so during that satanic panic, uh, I remember meeting with youth groups and I was I was also an associational youth director. So we had a our church association had like 40 churches in the association or whatever. And and I would meet with the youth groups and the pastors and the, the parents of, of the kids in the association. And it was all about how, you know, uh, your kids are being lured by the new age movement and the occult. And, and it was, it was that kind of stuff, which I bought into for a little while. Um, but at some point it dawned on me that everything that I had been reading in terms of the new age movement, those are my air quotes, uh, and the occult, more air quotes, um, that what I was reading was Christian authors Mm. about these things, you know, so they were just giving their perspective and really their goal was to talk about how evil these other religions were. So I was pastoring a church at the time, rural Baptist church. um, And I really came to understand that, that, everything that I had been doing was from that perspective that these things are evil, but I really didn't know what I was talking about. And so I said, I need to read some primary source material Mm. and I need to meet some people Mm. and get some perspective. So I drove 45 minutes um, 
I made sure it was not in my own community. <laughs> Surreptitiously uh, sneaking into uh, uh, air quote new age uh, metaphysical bookstore called the World Tree, and just and I introduced myself as a pastor, you know, uh, to to the owner, and I just said, you know, like I just need to learn not from a perspective of trying to convert anybody, not from a perspective of trying to figure out um, what are the holes in your belief system so that mm. I can, so that I can undermine it, but I just need to learn what folks actually believe and um, got into a, not only a great conversation, but it became a friendship uh, mm. with, with the owner. Um, the world tree was, it really was a community center, uh, not just a bookstore, but a community center for folks um, in that, uh, kind of a venue of belief systems. And I made some amazing friendships. And so during that time in my life, I was pastoring a rural Baptist church, but at the same time, my best friends, actually, as they developed to be, my best friends were Wiccans and, uh, you know, other kinds of what I used to call occultists, uh, witches and, and so forth. And they shared with me some amazing things, um, so much so that my faith began to take take on some of that. And while my theology remained Christian, some of my practices, um, you know, were informed by the practices of uh, Wiccans and uh, and other uh, kind of what folks would call New Agers. Um, so it was a, an interesting mix. And that's not where I am now. Now I'm much more in, you know, uh, of a meditative kind of uh, bent. Um, for a while, if you had spied on me, you would have uh, found me doing some things that looked pretty witchy. Um, but now you're probably more likely to just see me sitting in the shade of another tree uh, in, in meditation. So that gives you a little bit about what I wrote about. So it's safe to say you did not follow the wisdom that your pastor gave you when he sent you off to school. I did not. Good for you, man. I'm glad for that. That's cool. I, I remember reading in your chapter about, yeah, you driving outside of town to find the, the bookstore. And I just had to laugh. Um, it reminded me when, when my partner and I, when we were at our first church, this would have been in the nineties and uh, part of the holiness denomination that, you know, very legalistic and, Mm -hmm. couldn't you know couldn't couldn't watch couldn't go to the theater and so we would drive to the drive way across the other side of town to go see a movie and how silly that is that we had to do that but then it also reminded me how all of us have been on journeys and you know you just go out of your way to try to find truth not that i necessarily found truth going to see whatever it was i was seeing in the theater but to take your metaphor and your illustration and just to apply it to life and how beautiful it is and the system system can't hold that down. Uh, yeah. Thankful for love inviting all of us on a journey and really appreciate you guys hanging out with us, uh, with me today. Keith, where, where, I mean, we can find the book everywhere because it's live as of today, right? That's right. Yeah. As of this recording, uh, it is live. Today is the release date. Um, and it's number one in several categories already. So that's great. That's great news just to see the reaction. Uh, I do think this is something that people are going to resonate with. I think that maybe it's the, maybe the right time because you know, deconstruction has been going on for a long, long time. 
And I think maybe people are uh, a lot more open now. Um, you know, maybe now that they've kind of shed some of that fear and shame and guilt message from the evangelical background. Um, cause I was afraid it's like so others have said, you know, like, uh, growing up, you know, don't read that book and don't listen to those people. And, you know, they're danger, danger. Um, and now I feel like, no, I'm actually really curious. You know, I've already myself found a lot of wisdom from, from like Buddhism or black elk. You know, I love native American mystics and, um, yeah, things like that. And so, uh, yeah, hopefully it, this is the right time. People are ready for a book like this. Uh, I was blown away just reading all these different uh, the chapters and the different perspectives. And and there's a lot to learn. You know, I think if we can remain humble, admit that we have something to learn, that we're not right about everything, kind of loosen our grip on certainty and uh, get ready to embrace some mystery. Uh, there's a lot here. There's a lot of really great stuff here. I, if I can, I want to just mention some of the other authors that contributed. Yeah to the book. Um, in addition to the people here on this call, um, we have chapters from contributions from uh, Brandon Andrus, Martin Brooks, um, who's the director, the president of Peace Catalyst International, um, Alison Daphner, who's a wonderful Jewish writer, Hiranessa Fariad, who is an amazing Muslim woman, uh, an activist and peace worker. She's incredible. Uh, Heather Hamilton, um, who is fantastic. Her book is also uh, on a similar topic to this. Um, Travis Henry, who actually is the, he's my editor at Pathios. Uh, he wrote the forward. Shonda Ja, who's one of my co-hosts from Heretic Happy Hour. She's an Indian uh, woman and uh, she writes about Hinduism and Christianity. Uh, one of my, he, this guy's my hero. I love him. Uh, Dr. Safi Kaskas uh, contributed a chapter. I'm so excited about that. Uh, Ijaz Nakfi, another Muslim writer, uh, Duncan Pyle, and I think that's it. And I wrote the I wrote the afterward at the end. But um, yeah, it's just some incredible uh, contributors from so many different. I mean, we have a nice little cross section here: uh, Baha'i, Hinduism, uh, Taoism, you know, uh, Zen, and all that kind of stuff. And but there's Islam and Judaism and Christianity and so many other perspectives. Um, I'm so excited. I really, this book is a great dream come true in more ways than one. And I'm excited for people to read it. I hope they will pick it up and discover a whole lot of wisdom from a, from a bunch of different sources that you probably wouldn't have expected. Yeah, I am too. I'm really proud of you guys for putting it together and I think this will be a great resource. I think I had told you Keith in other conversations that I'm in the middle of editing a book this year that's bringing together, um, Christian and Muslims around uh, what's called open and relational theology. Some of you might be familiar with that. Yeah. That um, that has been such a joy to uh, participate in that. And I shouldn't be surprised, um, but I was a little bit again at how it's basically the same issues that we are all struggling with. Mm -hmm. You just um, extract certain names and certain different ideologies and insert others. And it's the, it's the fundamental journey of being a human um, uh, that you go through these things and have to fight certain systems and evils. And uh, so I think um, whatever we can do to promote humanity, and um, I think you guys are doing it in this book. I'm really, really proud of you. Yeah, thanks so much. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll have to do it again. I'm really uh, glad to have met you guys. And um, thanks for jumping on today. And, thanks uh, for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us, John. We appreciate the invitation.
All right, I'm going to hit end here and then. Oh, no, now I'm going to say goodbye. <laughs> I hit end instead of stop recording. I always okay. screw that part up. So now <laughs> I got to end the meeting. So peace. All right. Talk to you yeah. soon. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Okay.